Justice Alito has the opinion of the Court this morning in Case 1466, Janus versus American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. The, the petitioner in this case, Mark Janus, is an employee of the State of Illinois. He has chosen not to join the union selected by his fellow employees because he disagrees with what the union says in collective bargaining. In particular, he does not think that the union appreciates the effect of its positions on the state's financial situation. Nevertheless, Illinois law requires him to make monthly payments to the union and thus to fund the union's speech. Petitioner argues that this violates his right to freedom of speech, but the District Court and the Seventh Circuit rejected that argument based on our decision 41 years ago in Abood versus Detroit Board of Education. The basic argument in support of petitioner's position is pretty simple. It can be broken down into two steps. First, the freedom of speech protects not just the right to speech, but the right to speak, but the right not to be compelled to speak. This has long been established and the reason is obvious. Think about some controversial issue that is important to you. It might be immigration, gun control, abortion, or many others. Now, imagine that the government requires you to sign a document or to appear in a video expressing a view on that issue that is exactly the opposite of what you believe. Surely that is a violation of the right to freedom of speech. So on to step two. Suppose that the government doesn't require you to say something, but instead requires you to pay a spokesman to speak for you. And suppose that this spokesperson, funded by your dollars, says exactly the opposite of what you believe. Is that consistent with the freedom of speech? Thomas Jefferson certainly didn't think so. He famously wrote, quote, to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical. That is the basic argument in support of petitioner's position, and it's a strong one. So how can Illinois law require petitioner to pay the union to say things to which he strongly objects? In Abood, as I said, decided more than 40 years ago, this Court held that public employees who choose not to join a union can be forced to pay for union speech that is germane to collective bargaining, but they cannot be forced to subsidize the union speech on political or ideological issues. The payments that non-members can be required to make are conventionally called agency fees. They constitute a percentage of the regular union dues, in this case about 80 percent. What is the justification for requiring non-union members to pay these fees? Well, many justifications have been given, and they are discussed in the opinion of the Court. This morning, in the interest of time, I will talk about just two, the free rider argument and what I will call the pickering argument. And I will start with the free rider argument. The Abood Court thought it was fair to force non-members to pay partial union dues because otherwise they would be free riders. That is, they would get the benefit of having the union speak on their behalf in collective bargaining and grievance proceedings without paying for the service. 
It thought they were like people who get a free trip on a train or a bus without paying the fare. Of course, non-union members like Petitioner object to the free rider label. They say they are not free riders at all. They are captive riders. They are not trying to get a free ride to a destination they want to reach. Instead, they don't want to make the trip at all. And this is the fundamental problem with the free rider argument when it comes to free speech rights. In order to make any genuine free riders pay, it forces captive riders to fund speech to which they strongly object. Outside the context of the present dispute about agency fees, the free rider argument would never be thought to provide a justification for compelling individuals to pay for the speech of a private group with which they do not agree. Unions are not the only entities in this country that represent the interests of a group. In our society, there are countless private organizations that speak for the purpose of benefiting the members of some particular group. Say, doctors, seniors, farmers, veterans, bicyclists, bird watchers, you name it. An organization of this sort may speak in support of positions that it believes will benefit the members of the group. Some members of that group who do not pay dues may benefit from the organization's speech. They may agree with it. In order to make any genuine free riders pay their fair share, could the government require the payment of dues by all doctors, seniors, farmers, veterans, bicyclists, bird watchers, etc.? Outside the context of this particular case, our cases have never accepted such free rider arguments. So the question becomes whether there is a good reason to make an exception for agency fees. The main argument in favor of an exception is that a union that serves as the exclusive representative of all the members, all the employees in a unit, is required to provide fair representation for non-members as well as members. In other words, by requiring the union to represent non-members fairly, the law places an unwelcome burden on the union and it is thus only fair to make the non-members pay for that representation. However, this argument, uh, however this argument might appear at first, when you think about it, it is really a strange argument. It uses one legally imposed restriction of the free speech rights of non-union members as the justification for a second restriction. Employees like Petitioner don't choose to be represented by the union. They don't want the union to speak to the employer on their behalf. They would rather speak for themselves. But the law requires, uh, prevents them from speaking directly to their employer regarding wages, benefits, and conditions of employment, and it appoints a union as their unwanted spokesman. Then, after silencing them in this way, it turns around and says, since the union is speaking on your behalf, you have to pay for that service, even though you don't like what the union is saying. That cannot be. This brings me to the Pickering argument. This was not the justification for agency fees given in Abood, but when this Court began to question Abood in recent years, this became the main defense. It is the central argument in the dissent. What is the Pickering argument? Pickering was a case decided in 1968. A public school teacher was fired for publishing a letter in a newspaper criticizing the way in which the school board had handled a bond issue to raise money for the schools. The court held that the teacher's free speech rights were violated. 
Pickering and subsequent cases in the same line establish the following framework. When a public employee speaks as a citizen on a matter of public concern, the employee's free speech rights are protected unless they are outweighed by the employer's legitimate interests. But when a public employee speaks about a matter of only private uh, concern, for example, if an employee says, my boss is an ignoramus, the employee's speech is not protected. Although the Pickering line of cases has become the centerpiece of the dissent, uh, of the defense of Abood, there are many reasons why it is a very poor fit, but I will not go into all of those this morning. In the end, we conclude that even if Pickering provided the right framework for analyzing this case, the forced payment of agency fees could not be sustained. The main argument on the other side rests on the proposition that the things that public sector unions say in collective bargaining are not matters of public concern and therefore not protected. These comments, they say, are not addressed to the public square. They are workplace matters that are of only private concern. They are like the employee who insults his boss. This argument ignores reality. The things that public sector unions routinely say in collective bargaining are often of immense public importance. And this case is a perfect illustration. It is undeniable that Illinois has serious financial problems. The governor wants to deal with them in part through collective bargaining about employee wages and benefits. The union has other ideas and has proposed, among other things, tax increases and other changes in state tax law. No one can reasonably say that this dispute is a matter of only private concern. Among other things, its resolution may affect the taxes that residents pay, the quality of state services, and the health of the state's economy. Many other issues of great public importance also come up regularly in collective bargaining. For example, in the field of education, the parties may argue about teacher tenure, merit pay, classroom size, procedures for removing teachers, and the contents of the school curriculum. Can anyone say that these issues, which may profoundly affect the education of the nation's youth, are matters of concern for only the teachers themselves and the school administration? We don't think so. It follows that public sector union speech and collective bargaining is fundamentally a matter of public concern. This means that under Pickering, that speech is protected unless the legitimate interests of the government outweigh those of the employees, and that is not the situation here. Defenders of Abood claim that if agency fees are not allowed, the sky will fall, but experience shows otherwise. Federal employees who choose not to join a union are not required to pay agency fees. The same is true in the Postal Service and in many states that don't allow agency fees. But unions represent many millions of employees in all those jurisdictions. And although the dissent suggests otherwise, there is no evidence that agency fees are needed to maintain smooth and efficient government operations. So for these reasons and others that we explain in the opinion of the Court, we conclude that the Illinois law violates the First Amendment. That is not the end of the analysis, however, because we must also consider whether we should overrule Abood or retain it under the doctrine of stare decisis, even though we believe it is unconstitutional. Stare decisis, the principle that we should generally follow our past decisions, is a very important doctrine. 
It serves valuable purposes, and we are therefore quite reluctant to overrule precedent. But there are times when we must do so, particularly when the precedent involves the interpretation of the Constitution. If we hand down a decision based on an incorrect interpretation of the Constitution, the country is usually stuck with it unless we correct our own mistake. Our cases have identified a list of factors that may be taken into account in deciding whether to overrule a past decision, and we believe that at least four of them weigh heavily in favor of overruling Abood. First, Abood was poorly reasoned, as we have pointed out in decisions decided in recent years. Second, it has not proven to be workable. Recall that Abood drew a line between union speech that is germane to collective bargaining and speech that concerns political or ideological issues. There are problems with this line that cannot be fixed. Take the example of a public sector union's demand that a financially troubled state or city grant a large increase in wages or benefits. Are these statements germane to collective bargaining, or are they political? The answer is that they are both, and the union may make exactly the same arguments simultaneously in collective bargaining, in lobbying the legislature or city council, and in a public relations campaign. In addition, although our post-taboo cases attempted to create a procedure that would allow non-union members to challenge a union's calculation of the percentage of its expenses attributable to in each category, experience has shown that this creates daunting practical problems for any would-be challengers. This case illustrates the point. Here, the union told non-members, without any further explanation, that 80 percent of its expenditures for salary and benefits concerned work that was germane to collective bargaining. How could a non-member test this without retaining lawyers and accountants and pursuing a complicated and expensive legal challenge? Third, both the factual and legal underpinnings of the boot have been undermined by subsequent developments. And finally, reliance on a boot by public sector unions cannot justify the preservation of that precedent. Reliance sometimes weighs heavily in favor of retaining a precedent, but that is not the case here. Public sector collective bargaining agreements usually last for only a few years. The original term of the contract in this case was three years. That term ended some time ago, and since then the contract has been renewed for one year at a time. It would be unconscionable to require non-union members to continue to make unconstitutional payments in perpetuity just because some contracts now in force call for such payments. For all these reasons, we conclude that Abood must be overruled. So the decision of the Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit is reversed, and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. Justice Sotomayor has filed a dissenting opinion. Justice Kagan has filed a dissenting opinion with which Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor have joined.